Hi, I'm Ryan Becker, and you're listening to the Rock Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church Official Sermon Archive. You can find more information about our church at www.rockhillsdachurch.org. We hope by listening to this message that you are encouraged and challenged in your walk with Christ. Uh, This morning, I want to give you ample warning, because this is not a typical Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 sermon. (laughs) And I'm going to tell a medical story in this, it's not personal, uh, that gets a little bit graphic. And there's a reason for it, but I want to warn you now, because if you get squeamish or anything like that, just, just know that's coming closer to the end. So you're, you're good for the next like 10 minutes or so. But after that, I, all bets are off on this. So I want to I just jump in. We're going we're gonna to dig through a bit of Proverbs 3. And so that is actually where we're going to be pretty much the entire morning. And so you can open your Bibles and park there. Proverbs 3. Now, Proverbs has this refrain that is repeated several times. My son do this. My son, do not do that. And we know who wrote the Proverbs. This is, a lot of them were written by Solomon. And so this is Solomon writing to his son. And the reason I want to point that out and I want to call attention to that is because when we read Proverbs as as people far removed from the time that it was written, we see these as general advice for living. But if you're a father, you know that when you say something to your kids, You want them to take it seriously, to not just jump over the words or skip over them. There is an intentionality when a father speaks to his son. And this this same intentionality is, is, is present as Solomon writes to his son. And how much more important is it that we pay attention to words with this kind of intention than just general advice to us. And so it counts as both. And so we're actually going to start in verse 1. So we're in Proverbs 3, verse 1. He says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for for the length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Now Solomon is the wisest man in the world at this time, right? And so if, he's going, if anyone is going to experience peace and joy from, from anyone's advice, it's going to be from his advice. Following the advice of the wisest man of the, in the world is probably going to get you far. And so this is, this is kind of a, this is a warning to him. If you don't, I can't promise these same things to you. And peace they will add to you. Verse 3. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So that you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Now we're going to dig into a little bit of, uh, of what Solomon is saying here. Because I think it's really important to, to look at these words and, and, and to picture them and to interact with them. And so the first part of this I want to look at is, is binding them around your neck. Now when I think of this, the first thing that pops into my head is, and, and we've seen this before, but people who wear like a locket around their neck of a, with a picture of a loved one. 
in a necklace form. And this is, uh, this loved one could be dead, it could, they could be alive, it's just something, someone that's important to you. And, and they wear it in a necklace, and it's typically a little bit loose, right? Well, to a, to a Hebrew, the word bind here is not just wear it around your neck. This is like almost choking you. This is to wrap tightly so that there's no wiggle room. There's no room for escape. So letting steadfast love and faithfulness bind around your neck is to say that every breath you take, you're literally going to feel these things with every single breath. This is not just wearing it loosely. This is binding almost to the point of choking. And then he says, write them on the tablet of your heart. Here's the thing. When you're writing on paper, you can erase, you can, you can block, it, block it out and write in a different color ink. You can start over. But either way, when you're writing on paper, it tends to be a less destructive form of writing. But when you are writing on a tablet, you are carving into stone. There is permanence here. This is not just I'm going to write and then eventually erase and write with something new. On a tablet, you can do that, right? You, can, you could carve and then you could smooth the whole thing out and carve something else. But if you keep doing that, eventually you will run out of tablet to carve into. So when Solomon says, write them in the tablet of your heart, write steadfast love and faithfulness on the tablet of your heart, he's saying, make these things permanent, that they would literally pour out of your heart, that every time it beats, there is steadfast love and faithfulness going with that blood, that with every beat and every breath as it's bound around your neck, you are breathing these things, you are you are expressing steadfast love and faithfulness. Do you see how much more serious this becomes when you start looking at the words like this? Because I've read this for years and just read it, and it's easy to do that. But when I look at this as the words from father to son, then I have to look at this a little bit differently. And he continues... So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. I think Christianity in general has kind of shot itself in the foot a little bit when we've, when we've assumed that making us a Christian or making us an ally of God puts us automatically as an enemy of the world or the world is an enemy of God us, right? That we have to keep them out or that we have to keep ourselves shut away and pure and, and clean and untainted. And I've heard this expression a lot, you know, that eventually following God means that you're going to be against man. And there is truth to that. We've heard it with, with Jesus when he says, you know, foxes and, and birds have a place to lie, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And when Jesus warns his disciples that you've seen how they will treat me, they will treat you worse. And we know how the disciples and the early Christians were treated in Rome. That almost all of the disciples were tortured and, and crucified in some way. Or exiled. 
And so we've seen this and we've said, well, this is going to be 100% my experience. But here's the thing. Being in the favor, being in favor with God and with man is not always mutually exclusive. There is a time where they overlap. And I would contend that if you are expressing steadfast love and you are a faithful person, people will want to be around that and you will naturally earn that favor. Now, there is a time, I think, where we do differ with the world. Don't, I'm not saying go be in the world and, and, you know, take it all in and make it a part. That's not, that's not at all what I'm preaching here. But if we are not able to have positive reputation, positive, a positive name, then we aren't following this as much as we would like to be. And I think God intended us to have a right relationship with him and with man. Otherwise, Christianity wouldn't be so community-oriented, right? We wouldn't be looking at church. We wouldn't be looking at, at interacting with people so much. There is strong community that when, when God created Adam, he said, it is not good that man be alone. And so he created Eve. And it wasn't that Adam was imperfect when he was created. It was saying, I want someone, I want Adam to be able to express the same love, the same faithfulness to someone else as well as me. Now, some of what I've said sounds a little bit obvious. Like, you could figure this out without me. I don't, you don't need a degree to read it this way. You don't need all of this. And so, the reason that I bring it up this way, the reason that I'm digging into the text like this is because I want you to understand that there's a problem with how we've been reading Scripture, which is we've forgotten the intention with which it was written. And we read it and we glaze over it. And I know that this has happened to me, that I've been so encouraged to read the Bible first when I wake up in the morning, right? But as a young adult, when I do that, if I do it right when I wake up, chances are I'll fall right back asleep when I'm reading it. And that's, that's a flaw on my end, right? But if I'm reading Scripture when I'm half asleep and I, and I can't really focus on it, then I'm not going to be enriched by it. I'm not going to interact with it. I'm just going to be doing my due diligence. What is the intention that we are reading Scripture with? And that's going to be a big part of my challenge today for you to be thinking, how can I read Scripture differently? How can I interact with Scripture differently? Because when the Hebrews wrote these, they wrote these with intention. In fact, as the scribes were copying the Old Testament, if they messed up a single letter, they would start all over again, writing everything by hand. And the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew letters are a lot more, can be a lot more complicated than, than English letters can, and there's no erasing, there's no crossing out. So you get to the end of a book like Isaiah, and you mess up that last letter, and you've got to start all over again. If they wrote it with that much intentionality, how much should we be reading it with? That they put that much care into every letter. Now we're going to look at the focus text for today, verses 5 and 6. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. A Christian, an Adventist, anyone who claims to follow God, if they are trusting in the Lord with all their heart, will automatically have this steadfast love and faithfulness present. Because if you are being transformed, transformed by God, it's important to know that his nature includes those two things. That he has steadfast love and that he is faithful no matter what. And so what God is doing in this, when he reaches out and asks us to be in a relationship with him, when he reaches out and, and saves and calls us back to him to be restored and to be transformed, what he's saying is, I have presented you with steadfast love and faithfulness. And I'm asking now the same from you. Now, I want to put this a little bit more into perspective. And you don't have to turn there. But in Genesis 15, God is speaking with Abram before he becomes Abraham. And he makes him a promise. He says that the land that the Chaldeans currently own, which in that time was was Canaan, I will make that yours. And as Abram and God are talking, God says, look, you're going to have descendants, and your descendants are going to go. This is Genesis. Your descendants are going to go into captivity for 400 years. And then I will bring them out, and together we will occupy the land that I am promising to you this day. So before Israel even goes to Egypt, if Abram passes this information down, Israel should know this is probably going to happen soon. But here's the thing. As he makes this promise, and as he he sees this, Abram's probably thinking that's a little bit far-fetched. It's a little bit bit crazy. And so God here institutes something that the Hebrews would proceed to follow throughout their time in the Old Testament. And this is the way that the Hebrews would make covenants. So the Lord calls him to bring out three specific types of animals, and the the types aren't important for this this message. They would cut them in half, and they would line them up across from each other. And then each party would walk through that path that was created as a sign to seal this covenant and to to the Hebrew culture, to any culture actually in this time, this kind of symbolism is really important. We may see that and think that the ritualistic part of that is really weird. Kind of is. Let's just get that. It's a little weird, right? But to them, this was very important because it showed something. Like a pinky promise for, for kids, it meant something. But the key words I want to share with you are each party would walk through it. Genesis 15, however, reads like this. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. It does not say that Abram walked through as well. The Lord made this promise to Abram as a covenant that he would not break because the Lord is is a Lord of his word, regardless of whatever choices that Abram would make. If Abram turned away, if Abram 
mocked God, hated him, and turned away completely, God would still keep this promise. This is a God who is faithful to you regardless of your actions. And this is a covenant that would stretch over hundreds of years. This isn't just like, I'm going to buy you lunch tomorrow. This wasn't, we're going to meet here in a year. This was a covenant that would last for over 400 years. That God made with Abram regardless of how how Abram would react. And fire always, or typically symbolizes the presence of God. So that's why I say God walked through this. Because fire was typically the expression of God's, of God's presence in a place. This is the steadfast love and this is the faithfulness that God treats us with. And this is the same kind of faithfulness that he is calling us to treat him with. That regardless of what God does or regardless of what happens in the world, regardless of what we would see around us, that when we've said, God, I'm choosing you, we would stay the course. This is that faithfulness. This is that steadfast love. And we reach the verse that I want to, I'm going to end on today, which is verse 6. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make, your, make straight your paths. Now, this is, this is the point of this scripture where, where knowing Hebrew helps. And the intentionality with, with Hebrew words really comes in to play. I'm not saying you have to be a Hebrew scholar to understand everything. You could find this in a Google search easily. And this is where, this is one of those areas in Scripture where I think we've turned it PG-13 as we've translated it throughout the ages, where we've said, you know, this might be a little bit gross or a little bit uh, too much for the little eyes to see. So we're going to soften the blow a little bit. And when you do that with well-intentioned, with good intentions, you end up removing some of that depth and missing some of that depth that Scripture has. And the Hebrew word I'm specifically referring to is the word yada. Say that with me. Yada. Yada, right? Okay, so yada means to know. That is the word that we translate into acknowledge. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Here's the thing, if you're a good Hebrew student, and if you're a good student of the word, you know the scriptures back and forth. When, when someone includes a word in one area of scripture, your mind immediately says, where have I seen that word before? And typically, these are callback words, meant to indicate something from the way that word was used before. And this is not always the case. Just because a word is repeated doesn't mean it, it's meant the same. The only times that that is true is when it's in harmony with the rest of Scripture. So I don't want to say that just because it's used one place, it automatically means the same in another. That's not, there are, there are ways to establish that. But when, when, a, when a Hebrew reads this, when, when an Israelite reads this, you see, in all your ways, yadah him, and he will make straight your paths. They think of a specific verse in Genesis comes from Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. And it says, And Adam knew his wife Eve. 
Last I checked, and ladies, you can correct me on this, you don't get pregnant from someone simply acknowledging you. And if you do, I'm in a lot of trouble, right? Like, I've committed adultery way too many times for the amount of times that I've simply acknowledged you or given you credit or said hello or good morning or, or said thank you or showed appreciation. But it says that Adam knew his wife Eve. And so this is the act that God institutes where, where two people become one. This is an intimate knowledge. Yada, when it's used, is meant to say, not only do I know you, like, oh yeah, I know that person, but it's to be so, so integrated with what you are studying, with the knowledge, with the material, or the subject of, of, of your sights and your mind, that you are literally one with it, that you know it in and out, backwards and front. So then when I read Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, when I read verse 6, in all your ways, know him, and he will make straight your paths. So this is no longer that I, I, I say a prayer in the morning and I say a prayer at night and I'm good to go. This is no longer I do something great or I do something terrible and I either acknowledge God for it and say thank you or I say, God, where were you? This is, this is not just bringing God along the journey with you. This is that you and God are one throughout the entire journey. So when you're in the car and someone cuts you off, you know I'm one with God. What's the proper reaction here. 99% of the time, I fail at following the proper reaction. All right, so, hey, yeah, right? All right, so that's a confession, and I'd like to repent in front of the church. This is saying, in all of your ways, be one with God. Do you see now the intentionality that this scripture is written with? This is, this is not just bringing God along the journey with you. This is being with one with God the entire time, intimate, that you would know him and that he would know you. That you're sharing those intimate thoughts, whether good or bad. God's big enough to handle the anger and the pain. And he's big enough to handle the joys and the success and the celebration. But this is being one with God along the journey. And that's a game changer. Because once I know that, it means that now I don't get the excuse anymore. Sorry, but not sorry for that on you. But I think that this is challenging to us because the idea of being that intimate with, with God is a little bit uncomfortable. But I think if you're reading scripture and you're not being challenged and you're comfortable with everything you're reading, then you're probably not reading it to be transformed and to grow. But if the, relation, if the nature of a relationship with God is transformative, if we're supposed to look different, talk different, and act differently, then we should expect to find material in his word that challenges us, that we disagree with it first, or that we have to wrestle with it first. And so you may have to go home today or tonight and say, God, I don't know how this looks for me. I don't know what it looks like to be one, and quite honestly, I'm a little uncomfortable with it. Show me how to do it. Maybe that's the prayer that you need to pray. 
Maybe you need to go home and talk with your spouse or your family and say, how can we as a family unit or as a couple, as a, as a married couple, how can we share this oneness with God and this intimacy and this trust with God? So the idea that you would bind steadfast love and faithfulness to your neck, the idea that you would carve it permanently in the tablet of your heart, that you are literally becoming a part of steadfast love and faithfulness in your life. Now I'm going to stop here in the text for this morning, and I want to challenge you to continue reading this section of Proverbs on your own and apply some of these principles of, of reading the words and looking at them and, and, and asking yourself, what does this word look like? What does it feel like? What does it taste like? What is the action really asking me to do? I want to challenge you to do that. It doesn't mean you have to go look up the Hebrew. That's not, that's not the point. But just be reading Scripture with more intentionality. If you go on to Google, this is, this is story time now. So the warning has been cast. If you go on to Google you, and you search the swamps of Dagobah, it's a Star Wars reference. Dagobah, D-A-G-O-B-A-H. Dagobah. It's a Star Wars reference from one of the movies in the books. And um, you will actually find, before you find any links to Star Wars, you will find a story written by an OR nurse on a website called reddit.com. And Reddit is kind of like message boards or, or forum online where people can go and post things and comment on them. Uh, and and there's, a, there's a different section of Reddit for everything imaginable. I learned how to buy a car from Reddit. <laughs> from the Honda subreddit. I went to buy a, a, a girlfriend a car once, and I was like, hey, what should I look for in, in a car from all these Honda enthusiasts, from the Honda subreddit? And so on this specific subreddit, it was Ask Reddit, where people would ask questions, and, and people would re- then relate their stories back or, or answer these questions. And so the question that this OR nurse answers is, what, uh, what is the worst horror story, or what's a horror story that you've experienced? All right, so now we, now we really set the stage for this. So this OR nurse is working on call overnight at a hospital. So she's at home, she's asleep, and she gets woken up by a call at 2 a.m. It's not one that's unfamiliar for, for her. It's just a general surgery that she has to go in and deal with. So she goes in, and so she, when she arrives, she is told that the surgery is for uh, a perirectal abscess. If you don't know what that means, it's basically somewhere near the anus, there's, there's something uh, there, there's a pocket of pus that needs to be drained. I'm telling you, this is going to get a little gross. Now, I want to set the scene for you a little bit. The patient is a 314-pound Native American woman, and the team who would work on her had a combined 30 or so years of medical experience. They were not wet behind the ears by any stretch of the term. And the issue was not caused by weight. It was not caused by anything like that. It was caused because she was a druggie who would insert drugs through that area using dirty needles. And so an infection had spread. So they go into the surgery, they start, they start working. And this is, this is a direct quote from the story. And I don't know if this story is completely true or not, but it works as a parable anyway, so we're going to go with it. Quote, I'm going to quote directly from the story. It says, the surgeon steps up with a scalpel, sinks just the tip in, and at the exact same moment, the patient had a muscle twitch in her diaphragm. And just like that, all hell broke loose. 
Unbeknownst to us, the infection had actually tunneled nearly a foot into her abdomen, creating a vast cavern full of pus, rotten tissue, and fecal matter that had seeped out of her colon. And this was building up in pressure. So the second that, like a balloon, when you pop it, when you, it explodes. And this is an infection that's been there for no one knows how long. And so everyone panics when this happens because now this surgery has turned into something completely different. And to say this is gross is an understatement. And most of the nurses, as the smell hits them, start dry heaving and have to actually run out of the OR suite because they can't take that smell. And as the doors swing open and closed, that smell reaches all the way down the hall, 40 feet away, to the desk workers. And now there's everyone covering their mouth. And, and so the OR nurse says, she says, typically in every operating room suite in the nation, there is this, and you can, I don't know if this is incredibly true or not, but there is this jar of peppermint oil that is meant if you encounter something gross, you run to that and you, you put some on the inside of your mask so that you can deal with the smell. It's to block it out. She runs to that drawer and she opens the drawer and inside she finds nothing. Someone had used the last of it and not replaced it. And she, used some, she uses some creative words to describe this person. I'm not going to share those with you here. So she finds some substitute that she thinks might work. It really doesn't. And so she's got to keep leaving and all of the other nurses have to keep leaving the room. And at one point, the OR nurse turns around and she returns to the OR suite. And what she sees is something as if it were straight out of a movie. She looks in that room where nurses have run out, where there is all of this gross stuff everywhere. And she sees the surgeon standing there calmly. And here's what she says. Here's how she describes it. Here's this one guy in blue surgical garb, standing nearly ankle deep in lumps of dead tissue, fecal matter, and several liters of syrupy infection. She continues, he and I didn't say a word for the next 10 minutes as he scraped the inside of the abscess until all of the dead tissue was out. The front of his gown, a gruesome mixture of brown and red, and his eyes squinted against the stinging vapors originating directly in front of him. I'm that detailed about this for a, very, for a very good reason. She says after the surgery, uh, she heard this surgeon say the only negative sentence in the entire two and a half years they had worked together. That was bad. I don't know what your mess is. I don't know if you feel bad about yourself I don't know if you think that God can't love someone like you, and that's something that I hear quite often. I don't know if you think that God is not faithful to you. I don't know if you feel like other people have abandoned you and that you are not loved or that you are not appreciated. And I want to tell you this, no matter how gross the sin, God is still standing there, faithful to you, willing to clean out whatever it is that you would bring before him. No matter how gross, no matter how disgusting, there is a God that is faithful to you. My question to you this morning, 
is will you be that faithful to him?